There's a spot open in the chorus line. We're auditioning tomorrow morning. I think you should try out. I got an audition! Okay, ladies, I got one interest here, and that's the show. I don't care whether you live or die. I want to see you dance, and I want to see you smile. I can't use you if you can't smile. I can't use you if you can't show. I can't use you if you can't sell. From the creators of Basic Instinct, the last time they took you to the edge, this time they're taking you all the way. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. You got more natural talent when you dance than anybody I've ever seen. She's going down to the stardust. She's going to be in the show. Right? If someone gets in your way, step on them. It's not fair. It's not about fair. It's about power. You're a stripper, don't you get it? I'm a dancer. She's dazzling, she's exciting, and she's what Las Vegas is all about. The passion is real. I could fall in love with you. The desire is intense. You can't touch me, but I can touch you. I'd really love to touch you. And the show is about to begin. Showgirls. Leave your inhibitions at the door. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. I am pleased to welcome back my co-host, Ashley. Ashley, how are you today? I'm great. Excellent. Well, welcome. Welcome back. Once again, we got great feedback on your last appearance, The Exorcist 3. So thank you for joining me on that episode. Of course. Of course. It was a lot of fun. So... This is an interesting episode because this sort of marks the third entry into an unintentional trilogy of films that we're doing, covering the three things that you're really never supposed to talk about. Politics with Primary Color, Religion with The Exorcist 3, and Sex with today's episode on Showgirls. I think it's a perfect way to end out that, <laughs> that trifecta of, of negative, you know, talk, right? The, especially with like, we're, we're recording this right before the holidays, like the things you shouldn't bring up with grandma, any of those three things. I think it's a perfect end. And I just want to let the record show that this was not planned. This was just no. us talking. <laughs> the first time we were chatting on the phone, we were just discussing ideas for movies. And we're like, oh, we should do this and we should do that and we should do this. And then all of a sudden that just materialized and, and we've done it. So showgirls now this is probably if you would have asked me even a couple of years ago this probably wasn't going to be a quote-unquote how was this movie episode because i really didn't know how to tackle the subject matter i really didn't know how to tackle the film but what i've been wanting to do with sort of the the reimagining of this podcast is to start looking at movies that are not the big huge blockbusters like like we've talked about you know case in point primary colors exorcist three both Mm -hmm. both modestly successful films but they're not in the huge canon that is you know the greatest movies of all time and i thought now it's time let's look at some controversial movies and i i can think of a few controversial films but probably none more controversial for its time than 1995 showgirls so before we get into it take me through your experience as far as what were you doing in 95 and 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 was this movie on your radar Sure. So I was 12 in 95. um, So I was not first in line to go see this film. Uh, But I remember 
distinctly when this movie came out because my parents were so angry about this film. Um, I was a big Saved by the Bell watcher when I was like, you know, eight, nine years old, like most people of my generation were. And so, you know, Jesse Spano, Elizabeth Berkeley's character, had been in our home for a long time. And I actually was one of those weird girls. I never wanted to be Kelly Kapowski. I always wanted to be Jesse Spano. And so even more so, my my parents, I think, somehow like connected that character and the actress by default with with me, right? Because I I idolized the character so much when I was a kid. And so when Showgirls came out, I mean, I remember the uh, the Entertainment Tonight stories, you know, about the fact that Elizabeth Berkeley was was doing this, and I just remember how angry my parents were. I mean, they they kind of took it personally almost that Elizabeth Berkeley had decided to do this film. And so there was so much controversy surrounding it that eventually when it came out on video, my very best friend and I went to Blockbuster. We went every Friday night and we switched the tapes and we put the showgirls tape in Robin Hood men in tights because we rented Robin Hood men in tights like weekly when we were 12 years old. And so we went and we switched the tapes and we went home and we watched it. And I remember being so confused by a lot of it, um, but also just really taken aback by the the sensory overload that that movie is, especially at the age of, of 12, right? So I mean, what, I guess I was probably 13 by the time, but I mean, that's what I remember. And so I have not actually seen this movie, I don't think, since then. <laughs> and so when we got ready to watch it, I I think my perception of this film was shaped both by the experience as a preteen, you know, with my parents being angry and watching it as like this, you know, no, no film, you know, that you go behind your parents back and watch. And then also all the the hype that you hear about it, and how horrible it was and how terrible it was. And so that's kind of how I, I came into it. And I, I mean, we'll get into it in a second. But that's certainly not the way that I came out. I thought this was a really interesting experience at 30 watching it as opposed to at the age of 12 or 13. Absolutely. And yesterday I rewatched this film for the first time since it, it was released. I did not see it in the theater, but I did see it on home video. That was one of the things that I, but I remember it was a sort of a rite of passage because I was 17 when the movie came out and it was something that a lot of my friends who were 17 and we'll get into the specific age of 17 and what that what that means as far as being mm -hmm. able to actually see the movie yeah i remember seeing it and i was also i'll openly admit you know i watched saved by the bell religiously i was certainly following the controversy but i'll get into that in just a moment as, the far, as far as the controversy follow as far as elizabeth berkeley now i just want to do just a, a brief history of how we kind of got to Showgirls, and I'm just going to talk a little bit about the director Paul Verhoeven, and he he's actually got a couple of movies that I'm going to talk about here that are absolute stay tunes for this podcast because mm. there's a couple of them. In fact, one of them I actually tried to tackle about three or three and a half years ago, but wasn't able to put something together that I I was really happy with. Dutch director Paul Verhoeven was he was already established in his native country as an acclaimed director of some a lot of smaller films, nothing that really broke through in the United States, although he did receive a Golden Globe nomination for Best Foreign Film. But it wasn't until 1987's hyper-violent Robocop that Paul Verhoeven really started to make a name for himself. Now, in a decade that featured 
over-the-top action films, RoboCop actually stood above the rest. Now, an argument could easily be made that Verhoeven was, in fact, satirizing 1980s action films, with many of those movies pushing the threshold of violence and gore. RoboCop received an X rating when it was submitted to the Motion Picture Association of America, and that's very interesting because typically the X rating was established by the MPAA more for films that had explicit sexual material rather than violence. Now, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, the MPAA established the rating system as we know it in 1968. If a film received an X rating, simply put, no one under the age of 18 was allowed to view the film in theaters. Now, RoboCop was edited and resubmitted to the MPAA 11 times before it was finally given an R rating. Now, this is going to be a theme that we're going to talk about throughout the episode, but an X rating was effectively the kiss of death for a movie. So studios would almost 100% of the time mandate that a movie had to be edited down to receive an R rating. Now, I keep saying X rating. But you see, in 1990, the MPAA retitled the X rating to how it's known today, NC-17. Now, made on a $13 million budget, RoboCop took in $60 million domestically, and it was Paul Verhoeven's first true commercial success. Now, he would follow up the success of RoboCop with 1990's Total Recall, the Arnold Schwarzenegger extravaganza. The film took in close to $300 million, and, and another point of interest is that Total Recall, like RoboCop, initially received an X rating due to its graphic violence. An interesting thing happens to directors when they start to release successful movie after successful movie. The studio executives begin to let them sort of stretch their legs a little bit and give them a little more leeway for what, you know, for the type of movies they want to make. For Verhoeven's next film, he decided to take a break from the over-the-top action films and instead tell a story that features a far more taboo subject matter, and in this case, an erotic thriller. In the 1980s, a screenwriter by the name of Joe Esterhaas was all the rage, having wrote the screenplays for films like Flashdance and Jagged Edge. In 1991, the studio behind Terminator 2 and Total Recall purchased a script from Esterhaas for $3 million. The script was entitled Basic Instinct. Now, Verhoeven was brought on to direct, and Basic Instinct was released in 1992, and it starred Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone. Now, if the MPAA was up in arms about the director's previous movies and their level of graphic violence, they most assuredly had their heads spinning while rating Basic Instinct. Once again, Verhoeven's film was slapped with an X rating, and several edits had to be made. Point of interest, though, the R-rated version does include one of the most infamous scenes in cinema history and one that has not been duplicated since. All the controversy surrounding Basic Instinct worked as amazing publicity for the film as it went on to gross close to $400 million, exceeding that of Verhoeven's previous film, Total Recall. Joe Esterhaus and Paul Verhoeven were discussing what they would like to do next. Verhoeven mentioned that he always wanted to do an MGM-style musical, and Esterhaus suggested setting the story in Las Vegas. Now, given how successful the two had been, ironically, it was MGM Studios that greenlit the production with a $45 million budget and a $2 million advance for Esterhaus to write the script. On a personal note, as we were discussing at the beginning of the episode, the production of Showgirls was something that I was closely following in 1994 prior to its release. All sorts of entertainment shows like Entertainment Tonight and Access Hollywood would almost daily run pieces on the production of the film. 
And a lot of that had to do with the casting of the movie, like we were talking about. The fact that Verhoeven chose to cast Elizabeth Berkley in the lead role was such a massive story. I was right in that age group of the teens that grew up watching Saved by the Bell. And I will admit to be completely stunned by the casting choice. But one of the most interesting controversies that arose from the production of Showgirls was the fact that MGM Studios allowed Verhoeven to release the movie with the NC-17 rating that the MPAA gave the film. And they weren't just allowing the film to be released. No, it was going to be given a wide release. Now, this was a huge gamble that ultimately did not pay off for the film when it was released in theaters, as it failed to make back even its $45 million budget. However, thanks to I would only assume was immense curiosity and the power of home video, the movie did manage to take in more than $100 million. So that's just sort of a basic history of the film right there. But, you know, one of the things we keep touching on is sort of the casting of Elizabeth Berkeley. It was so, I mean, for lack of a better word, controversial at the time. And Ashley, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Berkeley herself. So Elizabeth Berkeley was already fairly well known to the general public when Showgirls came into her life, as we've mentioned before, thanks to her widely popular role in Saved by the Bell. Portraying caffeine pill addicted Jesse Spano, Berkeley had crafted a wholesome image thanks to the Saturday morning TV show and its huge following. Nothing, of course, would break ties with that clean cut image more, though, than our casting by Verhoeven as the title character Nomi in Showgirls, making waves and causing the controversy we've touched on amongst households that took her decision to take everything off fairly personally. Now, Paul Verhoeven, Vidana, actually says he had no idea about Saved by the Bell or Berkeley's role in it prior to casting her. Um, instead, Verhoeven claimed he was just looking for somebody who could dance and was okay with full frontal nudity. And Berkeley presented both, so she was cast despite being only known as the quote-unquote innocent type prior. As a side note, the other actresses that made it close to beating Berkeley out for the part, uh, they include a then-unknown Charlize Theron and Drew Barrymore. Barrymore was actually really wanted by execs to do the part, but she was really uncomfortable with the full frontal nudity, so she passed. And Verhoeven is discussed at length since the movie's come out that Theron was desperate. She wanted to be in this movie. She wanted to play Nomi. She was fine with all the nudity, but Theron didn't have what Verhoeven considered to be the right look or the dancing ability to beat Berkeley out. And that perhaps was a boon for Charlize and Drew as the backlash that Berkeley would receive for playing Nomi was utterly overwhelming. Immediately lambasted as one of the worst performances of all time, the disaster of Showgirls would completely derail Berkeley's career for years. Her agent immediately dropped her following the release of the film, and other agencies rejected even holding meetings with Berkeley for years following. Now, over the next decade or so, Berkeley would slowly work her way back into Hollywood, but never again to the same level that she was at prior in terms of that household name and the potential to be that next big thing. Uh, she would lend her voice alongside Kiefer Sutherland for the anime film Armitage 3. 
She appeared in bit parts in The First Wives Club, The Tax Man, and a couple of independent films. And she played a Carl girl in Oliver Stone's Any Given Sunday and acted in a small but pretty key role in Woody Allen's The Curse of the Jade Scorpion. Berkeley would go on to receive accolades for her stage work, though, in the late 1990s and the early 2000s. She appeared opposite Eddie Izzard in the critically acclaimed Weston production of Lenny, as well as opposite Richard Dreyfuss in 2004 on Broadway and Sly Fox. In 2005, she would receive the most critical acclaim for her off-Broadway performance in Hurley Burley, appearing with Parker Posey, Ethan Hawke, and Bobby Cannavale, with some critics actually apologizing in their reviews to Berkeley personally for criticizing her acting so much before because of the strength of Berkeley's performance in the play. Now, other than that stage work, Berkeley sent Showgirls has also made the TV circuit. She appeared in NYPD Blues, CSI Miami, Miami, Law and Order Criminal Intent, amongst others. And she also has been in a couple of Lifetime and Hallmark Channel made-for-TV movies, appeared as the host of dance reality shows Step Up and Dance in 2008, and is a contestant on Dancing with the Stars in 2013, where she would play sixth and be reunited with one of the fellow goddess dancers, Carrie Ann Anaba, who is the judge on Dancing with the Stars, which I, I had no idea she was in She was in that movie. Um, but still, Berkeley's acting career would never fully heal from her involvement with Showgirls. And it's something Verhoeven himself has actually expressed regret about, claiming that the public rejection of Berkeley was not just unfair, but markedly sexist, since actors like Kyle MacLachlan and others didn't see the hit to their acting prospects the same way that it occurred with Berkeley. And Berkeley herself, for years, would not even mention Showgirls, nor allow interviewers to ask her about it. In fact, publicly, Berkeley did not address her role as Nomi until the 20th anniversary of the film in 2015. Attending a screening with over 4,000 Showgirls fans, Berkeley finally broke her silence by simply stating the following. Whether this film has been your guilty pleasure, whether you have played pin the pasties on the Showgirl, or whether Nomi's own plight and her fight and struggle has become your own anthem in your life, I hope that it's brought you comfort. Good point you just touched on there about how Kyle MacLachlan and even Gina Gershwin, uh, yeah. their, their careers really didn't take a hit. Although one could say that Paul Verhoeven's career kind of took a hit after this. Following the release of Showgirls, he did release Starship Troopers in 1997. And that is a 100% stay tuned episode. Oh, one of my all-time favorite guilty pleasures is Starship Troopers, for sure. And it just barely, you know, it, that movie had a $105 million budget, which meant, I guess, even though uh, Showgirls was a quote-unquote financial failure, studio still believed enough in Verhoeven to give him a huge budget to work with. But after that, I mean, it's, it's kind of nothing after that. He did Hollow Man in 2000, which was not a very well-received. I mean, he did receive a lot of praise for Elle, which was received in 2016. But, but his days of making the big, giant spectacle films, they ended after Starship Troopers, essentially. It was a little bit of a disaster for a, a few people involved. But you're right, Berkeley certainly took the brunt of the blame for this. And and I think as we're going to figure out, I don't think she is to blame because when you look at Verhoeven's previous work, he is a very, very competent director and mm. he can get very good performances out of people. And I think we're going to start to establish a pattern here that, you know, Berkeley was clearly following the direction of Verhoeven because you can watch her in some scenes in Save by the Bell and say, that's a very good actress right there. So it's really, you know, I don't want to jump to the conclusion of the episode yet, but it, it's it's really sad what happened to her. 
And it's really unfortunate. It, it is. And, and I think that, um, I, I mean, I know we're going to get into it in a little bit, but I, I think that Berkeley actually did exactly what Verhoeven wanted. And if we watch it through a certain lens, I think her performance is not to be lambasted, but more to be, you know, praised for what she was able to actually, actually do in that role. So, so yeah, but it is, it, it, it's terrible. And it, it's really unfortunate because she was right there on that precipice of, you know, becoming a really big celebrity. And it just, it didn't quite work out that way for her. And this is sort of off topic, but you kind of look at the the entire cast of Saved by the Bell and and what they were able to accomplish. I mean, you, you get Mark Paul Gossler. He's you know I wouldn't say he he w- made it to superstar status, but he certainly had a you know a, a run of successful you know TV series or, or independent films and things like that. Of course, Tiffany Amber Thiessen, she she did several things. Yeah, who knew that Kelly Kapowski would become the femme fatale and like everything else that Ab- she did after yeah. that? It's so strange. Absolutely, Mario Lopez. Yeah, I was about to say mm-hmm. AC. Slater, because I just I still know them by their mm-hmm. I still know them by their oh, yeah. by their you know Mario Lopez he he's gone on to do a lot of great things I remember he was on that show Pacific Blue he's he's been a, well now he's the host yeah, you yeah. know he does all the hosting yeah, now so mm-hmm. can't say the same for you know the guy that plays Screech well Dustin he did Diamond. have the porn yeah, yeah. <laughs> he did have <laughs> so, that one porn so. <laughs> but uh, you know they all they all with the exception of Dustin Diamond they all you know they all kind of went on to 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 do things to have a pretty prominent career. So it's just, it's very unfortunate. But I, w- I was curious because I don't know anything about showgirls as, a, I don't really know anything about, like I went to Las Vegas for the first time in 2011. And by that point, shows starring, like, I, I don't know what we call them, but the showgirls, like, that had, that had gone away. And in place of it was Cirque du Soleil. And in place of it was Celine Dion or Britney Spears or Donnie and Marie. And that era I think sort of went away in the 1990s, but I was always sort of curious because when I'm watching the movie, I'm going, is this a, was this really like, were showgirls like, were they the, the, were they were the stars in Vegas? I mean, they were bigger than Hollywood royalty. It seemed like, can you talk just a little bit about what it was like to be a showgirl in the 1990s? Sure. So I, I, I actually did. I did a little bit of research because I remember growing up, my, my dad, he's a semi-professional poker player. Now that he's retired, he plays poker 24-7, basically. That's what he does. And so we've been to Vegas with him for a couple, you know, a couple of times and when I was a kid. And then he goes sometimes to play in tournaments. And I remember the first time I went to Vegas, I was about actually the same age that this movie came out. I was about 12 or 13. We had been in LA and then we went over to Vegas. And I remember the, you know, the the girls with the big, you know, plumes and head dresses and things like that. And they were beautiful and sparkly and full of rhinestones. But I had no idea as a kid that they were topless. Like that was never something that I realized. And the only time I've ever been to a show like that is in Paris. I've been to the Moulin Rouge. I've been there to see the show actually in person. And they're, you know, they're topless there. And and it's 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 a little strange. And I I, I think it's just such a weird amalgam of, you know, dancing and being topless, right? I think it's such a weird world. Like who, which, who's the audience for that, right? So I did a little bit of research. And so in Vegas, there still are showgirls. And showgirls actually only make about $39,000 a year. Now, they do get benefits, they get a 401k, they get health insurance by and large, but their actual salary is only about 39000 
What's interesting, though, is that the average exotic dancer in Vegas makes 54000 a year, which is about 11% higher than the national average. So I think it's an interesting thing for us to consider because Nomi's so excited to leave this job at the Cheetah in her, in the movie and go and take this job at the Goddess and talks about how much more money she's going to be making, when in reality, that doesn't appear to be the case. Also, not everyone in shows like Goddess, the, the showgirls actually actual show in the movie is required to go topless. There actually is two different categories of of dancers. The ones that do go topless are referred to as dancing nudes. And the ones that don't are called bluebells. Now, (laughs) <laughs> it sounds a lot like blue balls to me, to be honest, like, which I think would make sense because they don't take off their, their tops. But I couldn't find any connection. That's something dating back to Sinatra. That's as far back as I could find that. But the ones that are blue bells make less money than the ones that are dancing nude. So if you take your top off, you do make a little bit more, but not, not an extreme amount more. Now, Verhoeven wanted to make an extremely accurate film about the exploitation of women and the exotic dancing and sex industries in Vegas. And so he famously interviewed 50 dancers, showgirls, etc. prior to the movie taking place. Once the movie came out, though, those 50 women went public and said that Verhoeven did not actually represent them or their profession accurately at all. And so I wanted to do my own research. So I called up a friend of mine. And and now I've mentioned on here before that I live in Houston, Texas, but I'm actually from New Orleans originally. I lived there most of my life through college, um, attended college there, got my bachelor's degree. And one of my very close friends, whose name she asked me not to mention, of course, she actually stripped on Bourbon Street during our junior and senior years of college. And she went on to be a an actual dancer at the casino in New Orleans once we were all finished with school. So she's had her hand in both of those worlds. And while she no longer works in any sort of uh, industry like that. She has a really traditional job now. I called her up to find out if her experiences dancing and stripping from about 2004 to 2008 were anything like the movie, or if she knew anyone that worked in Vegas, if their experience was like Nomi's, and just kind of her opinion about the film in general. And so I want to preface this by saying the club she worked at is one of Bourbon Street's higher end clubs. So it's a lot like what the cheetah is supposed to be in in the movie. And anyway, these are just some interesting tidbits that I I thought that we could talk about from our conversation. So first, she said that she thinks it's really funny that they're all good dancers because that dancing actually has nothing to to do with it. So the choreographed scenes between like Nomi and Penny, like, you know, they didn't go behind the scenes and figure all that out ahead of time. It's not about, you know, how you move your body. It's more about how you move your body, not the movements themselves. And she also thought it was really funny that they were all so beautiful and of the same body type. Because my my friend, I'll I'll preface this, my, my friend is gorgeous. Like she looks like a model. And so you would assume that she would like make a lot of money doing that because she's traditionally beautiful. But she said that there was another woman, one of her colleagues that was about 275 pounds ish. And she said she made as much money and sometimes more than than my friend did. Because she said some men came in and that's what they wanted. And so she thought it was very strange that they were all like these cookie cutter 
image of one another. She also thought it was weird that they were also sweaty all the time um, <laughs> because she said that isn't at all the case. And we, we laughed, you know, living in New Orleans, movies in general portray the South like there's no air conditioning. Like in that movie, A Time to Kill, how Matthew McConaughey is always sweaty. Like there's no air conditioning in any, in any place in the South. We only have ceiling fans. And she said it was the same thing that she was thinking of watching it like strip clubs have air conditioning. Like, you know, she didn't understand why they were so sweaty. And she said the customers really are that fucked up and shitty. But they're also some nice dudes. But she said a lot of them are, are super messed up. And, and you know, she also talked about how it was a lot of fun. It wasn't a burden for her. But she did know people who had to do it because that's the only option they had. And she said that's the one thing she didn't think that the movie portrayed well, is that there are some people that this is something they genuinely enjoy. And like, like her, she found it empowering. She liked it. And there were some people who were like, this was their only option in life. And she said she wished that they had shown a little bit more of that. And then the final thing I'll bring up is, is the money. You know, she said that so obviously living in New Orleans, Mardi Gras is like our, our biggest point of year. And a lot of people who don't live there don't realize Mardi Gras is actually a month long. It's not just one day. And she said over the course of Mardi Gras, she made more than she does in over like a fourth of a year now. She made she, you know, she said she made tons of money. And so she doesn't understand why in the movie Nomi would ever want to leave that from a from a money perspective because she said it's just it's so much she said if anything she misses that she misses the cash and she said that you know if Nomi was at her club and she looked like she looked shit she would have made a fuck ton of money you know that that was for sure but um but yeah but I thought that was all I thought that was really interesting and I mean Dana I assume you've been to a strip club before I have. It's interesting. Um, you you mentioned uh, you know the the different types of girls that are that are at right. at strip clubs. When I was in Vegas in 2011, you know, and I know that the old saying "What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas," but I'll, I'll so I won't mention my good friends that were with me. I won't mention their <laughs> names. But we had one of those epic Saturday nights in Las Vegas. You know, we started at the Hard Rock to go see a DJ. That we went to go see a, a DJ by the name of Tiesto, who I was a huge fan of. And that ended at three or four, no, we left at like three or four in the morning. And we were staying at the Palms because we were guests at the Palms. We were able to get into Club Rain, which was the, mm-hmm. the big nightclub. In the, and I'll never forget walking in at like five in the morning. And by the way, side note here, that that, you know, that rumor you hear about them pumping pure oxygen into the casino, that's all true. It has to be. There's no other way to explain why I was just so wide awake at four in the morning. And as soon as I went outside, I was like, I'm so tired. But anyway, that's, that's a side note. Um, but walking into Club Rain, I look up in the DJ booth and it's that guy from the Jersey Shore. DJ, oh, uh, DJ, Pauly DJ Pauly D, and with with his foot high hair, and I was just, I mean, and and I'm, I'm and I'm, I'm, I was still DJing at the time, and so of course, whenever I'd go to a nightclub, I would always just sort of watch the DJ. And it's one thing I can tell you about his the music he played that night because he was at a really high end nightclub where he would have been booed if he didn't play like the proper club music. Like I recognize that, so he was playing appropriate music for the venue. But he never shut the fuck up. Every 30 seconds, he was on the microphone like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, just never stopped. Anyway, okay. That being said, we had a casino host. We had a host. One of my friends was a big time gambler. And and at seven o'clock in the morning, it's now seven o'clock Sunday morning. My buddies come up to me and said, we're going to a strip club. I'll admit three sheets to the wind, drunk, just, just extremely drunk, had a lot to drink. And I said, where are we going? We're going to a place called Sapphire which uh, apparently is a very well-known uh, strip club in Vegas. I had never heard of it. But we got into a stretched Hummer limo to Sapphire. And this is what I found really interesting. I don't remember much about it because I'd had a lot to drink. But when we walked in, 
they took us to like a like a VIP sitting area. And within minutes, you know, some of the girls came over and sat down and started talking to us. And I will admit to having, um, I don't know if I feel comfortable telling people this, but when I first started my DJing career in the, in the late 90s, um, I was desperate to find work as a DJ and I did accept a three month position working at a, at a strip club. So yes, I did actually DJ strip club for a brief period in my, in my 20 plus DJ career. I say a three month, I, I was fired and I'll get into that. That's a, that's a, that's a whole story I'll have to tell one day, but <laughs> maybe that's just for the, for the Patreon account. That's a good idea. I will tell, yeah. <laughs> I will tell the, the, the strip club. Dana story. after dark. Dana after dark. I will. That's a great idea. I'm going to record that. But I mentioned that because I know I have some experience in inside a strip club and I and I understand that the girls that work there, you know, I don't want to use the word it's a hustle, but you know, they they don't make their money on stage. You know, they make their money through the the lap dances and the private dances and the private, you know, the 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 champagne room and places like that. Like when they're on stage, that's kind of I think more or less just sort of announced to the crowd like this is who I am and then they'll come and sit and talk to you and that's how they make their money. But I know that because I worked at a strip club and and so, you know, the girls comes and sit next to me and I'm I am absolutely respectful that she's trying to you know she that she's got a job to do and I'm very pleasant when I'm 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 chatting with her but at the same time she this particular girl was really pissed off and that was very unbecoming when you're in a strip club she sat down and I was like hey how are you she's like this fucking place and I'm like hi yeah okay so we're like pouring our champagne like okay yeah and I'm like what's wrong she goes what's wrong and she crosses her arm she goes what's wrong I'll tell you what's fucking wrong that over there and and she points and there was a group of it had to have been 20 Japanese businessmen that were all in suits all sitting around one big table and they had asked every blonde that worked there to sit with them and they were paying each one of them $500 an hour just to sit with them and have drinks and just participate in conversation. Well, the girl sitting next to me was a brunette. And so she was not invited to sit over there. And I'll just, I'll never forget like, and she was just beyond pissed off and she was cussing and it was really took us out of the moment so much so that one of my friends went up and asked the manager if they could ask her to, to, to go away from us. So yeah, that was my last, and that was the, you know, I worked at the strip club in the 90s. I hadn't been to one since that time in 2011. I haven't been to one since then. You know, I have, uh, I mean, I've, I've been to both male and female strip clubs before. Um, I've never, I've never been to one like the Cheetah in the, in the movie. I've never been to one like that. Not a huge fan of, of the strip clubs. I mean, I, I, you know, don't really, I mean, I guess I get the idea, right? But I, I'm not a huge fan of people I don't know touching me. So I don't think I would ever like enjoy the, I mean, also I'm a, I'll, I'll just, we'll preface this for the whole episode. I mean, you know, I'm definitely like a cisgendered heterosexual woman. And so while I can appreciate beautiful women, that's not like my thing. And but I've been I've been for parties. I mean, look, growing up in New Orleans, you wind up I've thrown up in a couple of strip clubs on Bourbon Street because they were there, you know, I mean, like it happens. So, you know, I mean, I've definitely been to them, but I I've certainly never been to one that was like this. And I think I would much prefer one like the Cheetah because there's some production value to it, right? But I've never been to one that has that 
that type of production value. And according to my friend, it just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't exist, you know? So, but, but I, I can't say that we can blame showgirls for that though. Cause I was thinking in this, like what are other movies with exotic dancers? Right. And I mean, and in the movie, like flash dance, they, they, it, all that production value. Like, I mean, what strip club do you go to where somebody, you know, choreographs the type of routine she has in that, or even Demi Moore and strip tease, you know, I mean, there's, there's not, I don't think maybe ever been a truly accurate portrayal of what, a strip club looks like what the experience is like and you know and and also the money i thought the money was a little off i mean uh, maybe you would know better than me but the type of dance that she gives kyle mclaughlin that seemed you know 500 bucks seemed like a little seemed a little low so okay so i say i haven't been to a strip club since since when i worked in one 2011 i did go to what's known as a gentleman's club in tampa a few years back, this is one where they don't actually take their clothes off. They're, they they wear pasties and 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 things like that, but they don't actually. So it's go- like burlesque. Yeah, well, no, it's like a just like a regular strip club. Oh, okay. But but they did, but they're because they serve alcohol, they're not allowed to go nude. This is Florida. Mm. Florida has some very archaic because they have to serve food, right? Well, well, no, no, because they serve no. There's no food there, but be- if it's alcohol, it's a county by county in the state of Florida. Like the county I live in here, there are no strip clubs. They're just not allowed. You go up one, you go up one county above, which is Alachua County, and they do have strip clubs there. But the in this one particular one in Tampa, because they served alcohol, full like full liquor and whatnot, this particular one they didn't allow nudity. But they would, it was treated like a typical strip club. And huh. we we had gone to a New York Yankees spring training baseball game that particular day, and we'd had a few beers, and one of my friend had way too much to drink, and convinced us on our way home to stop at this particular place. I was against it. I just want the record to show. Uh, again, I, I stress, I'm not interested in going to those places, uh, but I wasn't the driver, so I was outvoted. Anyway, the point of this story, and it, it goes to what you're saying about the, the $500 thing, was when you go into a place like this, like they give you a ticket at the door, and it's a two-drink minimum, meaning that if you want to leave this establishment, you have to purchase two drinks. It's not like you can walk in and like, you know what? This isn't for me. Nope. You're already on the hook for $10 beers. So you're, you're already hooked for $20 on top of the $20 cover charge you pay to get into this place. But for the purpose of this story, we get in there and I'm sitting at the bar and I'm just watching football on the, on the TV and, or baseball or whatever on the TV. And my buddy next to me, he's had way too much to drink. And the girl comes up and starts talking to him and he's, he's all in. He's talking to her and, and she's explaining the, the different areas inside this particular establishment. And she said, do you want to go to the champagne room? And now I all of a sudden felt like I was the mediator because my friend had way too much to drink. And so I chimed in and said, excuse me, how much is the champagne room? And she goes, well, it's it's $100 for a, a half an hour. And I said, okay, all right. And, and my friend's like, I want to go there. She's, oh, no, we can go to the back room. And the back room is $300 for a half an hour. And I was like, well, what's the difference? She goes, well, I'm not really allowed to tell you what the difference is. And then she goes, or we can go up in the attic. And I went, the attic? What's in the attic? She goes, well, that's $500 for a half an hour. And she said, and there's no cameras in there. And I went, okay, I see what's going on here. So my buddy Joe goes, all right, I want to go up in the attic. And I'm like, he's not going anywhere. And long story short, we ended up getting thrown out because she was accusing me of preventing her from doing her job because I wouldn't let my friend spend $500 on, you know, oh and, and, and so we ended up getting thrown out. 
but um, not thrown out. We get ended up getting asked to leave. So those kind of numbers are not out of the norm. Now, that movie was 20-something years ago. This was two years ago. So Yeah, I mean, but, that just seemed like, I mean, the amount of work she does in that, and we'll get into that later. But, you know, I mean, like, it just seemed like $500 was a was a bargain, you know, for, for Gina Gershon and Kyle MacLachlan yeah, and, yeah. That, and that scheme. So, um, and then one, one other, and I'm done telling strip club stories after this, but one other thing, because I'm one of these people that is just genuinely curious about everything. And I'm looking at the stage and they have this machine that's at the end of the stage. And it looks kind of like an AT, an oversized ATM machine. It starts at the bottom. The stage is probably three feet off the ground and it goes up probably another four feet. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm going, what is, what is that? And just, you know, there's girls everywhere, but I'm more focused on what is that machine and what does that do? So I get up from the bar and I walk over and I look at it and it's the, it was known as a make it rain machine. And I said, oh, I said, well, that's pretty interesting. And it said, you know, put a 10, 20, 50, $100 bill in there. And I said, well, when in Rome. So I said, you know, I'm just curious. I want to see how that's this works. Amazing. <laughs> I, I said, I, I just want to see this thing work. And so I pulled a 20 out. And at this point, the girl who's on stage, she sees that I'm getting ready to use the make it rain machine. And so she starts w- like walking over on, on her hands. She's on all, on, on all fours and she's just kind of slowly walking over towards me. And I'm like, this is going to be interesting. So I put the 20 in and the machine lights up. All these little lights go off. And I'm like, I'm expecting it just to go, foo, 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 just start spitting the $1 bills everywhere. Well, apparently this machine was malfunctioning because I went on the other end and it was literally like one bill just drooped out of time, just drooped out. And she just walked over there and just picked one bill out and just like she knew this was going to happen and just slowly but surely just collected each dollar as it just kind of just given her the 20 (laughs) just drooped out and i was and and part of me was like no 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 and i walked over there and i was kind of like no i'd like to tap i want half of that back because this this is not and i wasn't going to argue with her but so the yeah that make it rain machine didn't work to make it i mean i no. i mean i think that's pretty great anything that you can be interactive right like i think think like a little john little john video you know (laughs) that's fantastic gotten too much too much into the strip club (laughs) conversation here it's all right though it's good it pertains to the episode that we're talking about. It does. About. You can't talk about strip about showgirls and not talk about strip clubs. Like it just can't happen. So, so let's talk. Let's let's talk a little bit about the movie itself. Now, when I was watching it yesterday again for the first time in in twenty something years, I had vague memories of seeing it before. Like I had vague memories of you mentioned the scene with Kyle McLaughlin in the strip club, the the scene in the pool. I had vague memories of. You know, some of the more brutal things that happened in the movie, you know, and and I, I knew the beats. I, 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 re- I remember the film enough that I knew the beats as far as the things that were going to happen. I knew that she was going to get, you know, she was hitchhiking and she gets ripped off. But what I didn't remember was just how over the top all the performances were in the film. And that's what I really want to talk about right now is this was by design. This had to have been by design. I I was remember I'm watching the movie going, what is going? On? This doesn't make like when she walks out when 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 she loses her mutt when she finds out she's getting ripped off and she gets out there and she's just flailing her arms and she freaks out. I'm like, what? 
and I, there was a part of me, Ashley, that said, I'm going to have to call Ashley and sell, tell her this is off. I can't watch this because I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't buying into what, what Verhoeven was trying to do. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the over the top performances and whether or not you agree with me that this was by design. Yeah, absolutely. For for those of you that are listening that have not seen this in forever, I found this one quote from the review that The Guardian did of the movie at, at, its, at its anniversary in 2015. They re-reviewed it. And I think that this sums up everything that Dana and I are about to talk about. And it says, it is in short, like watching Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge making cocaine-fueled love to an episode of the Argentinian version of Dancing with the Stars with a sugary-smelling air fresher clogging up your nostrils and prince blasting from the stereo and i think that never a more accurate statement has been made about a movie because it is just this overload on your senses and i was reading about paul verhoven and he talked about how you kind of touched on it with like robocop and total recall that he has what he considers to be a hyperbolic approach to filmmaking so everything is meant to be big and so when i started to watch this for me i mean when she brings out the knife right and then she throws the fries and it's just so strange but you get almost like how like you get used to a bad smell over time you start to get desensitized to how over the top it is and if you start to notice it's not just the performances the lighting is way too bright the coloring is way too saturated on screen even the casinos when they drive up they look like they're on green screen they don't look like they're actual casinos and I went and did some research and they are. I mean, I was convinced they filmed this whole thing on green screen when they were outside, but it, but it isn't. And I think that when we start to unpack it in that way, we start to realize that Verhoeven is intentionally encouraging his actors. He's intentionally encouraging his directing staff and his cinematographer and everyone to make a movie where everything is so blatantly over the top because it's part of the the whole message I think he's getting to. And I know we'll get into the end, that ending part, because I think that it's all a setup for what happens at the end of this movie. But I, I think that it, it's really, really smart. And there's no way, like I, I wrote a note, I wrote, there's no way a movie that is this bad made by this many good filmmakers is not intentional. Like there's just no way. Now, if it was his first film, maybe, but knowing what, I know about Verhoeven. There's, you know, I, I so that's when I started to think about the, the satirical aspect of it, or the, you know, the more um, intentional aspect. I mean, what did what did you think? I mean, what was kind of your thought process? Well, watching the movie, I, I really started to to see a pattern um, emerge here in the sense that with what Verhoeven did with RoboCop, where he said, "Oh, okay, so you like over the top violence and all this stuff. I'm going to give it to you. I'm really going to give it to you, but I'm going to do it." I'm also going to make a great film along the way. I'm going to make a very smart movie that, but the violence is just, it's just brutal in Robocop. With Showgirls, there just seemed to be this theme that was running through the movie. I was starting to get the message. And the message to me was, this is, and I've been struggling with this since I watched this yesterday. And I've just been thinking, the theme I was really getting from this movie was that it was, it was telling you that be careful what you wish for because it's not going to be the reality. And then I saw this other arching theme about not understanding what it is that you have. And you mentioned this with, you know, when you said your friend was curious why she would want to leave the cheetah for, mm. for, for the showgirl, for the, uh, the, uh, the goddess. 
And I said to myself, when she ascends to the top, she's doing the exact same thing that she was doing at the cheetah. She's still surrounded by sleazy men. They're just now way more powerful. And it just seemed to me that this movie was sort of telling the same story over and over again. It was she actually never, Nomi never stopped doing the same thing, even though she thought she was doing something different. The reality is by the time she gets the lead in the show, she's still just on stage and she's still just looked at as an object by the men and and that there was no end game for her that when she reached the top, she's going to be at the top. She may be at the top for a little bit, but then she's going to be knocked right back down. And I mean, again, that that probably what she realizes by the ending. But but I was really like looking deep into this film, trying to understand, trying to figure out what Verhoeven was trying to do. Sure. I mean, I, I think that you bring up a great point in terms of the objectification. I think that one of the things that has aged well with this movie is that we talk a lot today in our society about how often people who are objectified or taken advantage of that that it's difficult for us to see the systems that are in place for that taking of advantage to happen right and so we we talked a little bit in the primary colors episode about like the me too movement and things like that and so if we think about women and the objectification of women i think sometimes we don't even realize when women are being objectified because the misogyny is so deeply ingrained in like our, our society. And so when you look at the way that Verhoeven shoots it, the lights are, are too bright. The women are wearing too much makeup. Their bodies are way too perfect. Cause I mean, let's just be honest here. Gina Gershon and like Elizabeth Berkeley, like they're like, they're amazing looking in this movie. I mean, they are just absolutely, everything about them is utterly perfect in terms of physicality. And so, you know, when you look at it, Verhoeven has these extremely beautiful women that aren't achieving any sort of sexuality. I mean, because the music is sexy, the nudity is sexual, the movements are overtly sexual, but it winds up not being sexually arousing in any way. And it's weird. I mean, it's it's kind of almost like, for me, it's almost like he's making commentary about like, like porn, for example, right? Because like super produced porn, the people are all hairless, and they're shiny, and they're super tan. And I've never been in the room with somebody who looks like that naked, like, and I wouldn't want to be. I mean, that's why I think amateur porn gets so much more views nowadays than, you know, than produced porn does, because it's more realistic. And I think that's what he's doing here is he's showing us this and he's shoving in our face like these women are being objectified because this is the way you want them to be portrayed. You want them to be perfect. You want them to be beautiful with perfectly lined lips and perfect dance routines and this utter, you know, example of perfection. And when they become come that that's at their height, like wanting that in general starts their objectification. And so Nomi can't get out of it. She thinks she's going to come out of that cycle of, you know, mistreatment by leaving the cheetah. But like you said, she winds up, it's just, it's just a prettier package, right? Because she's still naked. She's still having to show her body. She's still having to rely on her sexuality. And I think that's the point that he's, he's making for us here that, you know, this movie should be hot, but I don't know about you, but I don't think there's anything hot about this movie at all. Yeah, and that's the thing. And 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 watching it yesterday, uh, it, it was kind of perplexing that you know here's a movie that's rated NC-17 for graphic sexuality, yet you know when you look at a movie like Basic Instinct, you're like, wow, okay, that's an erotic thriller. That's you know that's 
But then you, you, you flip the script and you look at Showgirls, which, you know, is the follow-up that Verhoeven did to, to Basic Instinct. And it's unpleasant. There, the, 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 I mean, it, it was, I don't want to say it was jarring or unsettling, but there was no, there was nothing erotic about this film no. whatsoever. In fact, it was, it was, it was almost like, you know, like, like there's, there's the particular sex scene between, uh, McLaughlin and, and Berkeley in, in the pool. I'm just like, I'm just like, can we just fast forward through this? Because there was, it was, okay. it, was, it was, it was, it was the whole, yeah. Just no. can we, can we just talk about how there's never a less sexy place in the world than Kyle McLaughlin's pool with a dolphin fountain, neon palm trees, and a wasted bottle of champagne all over your, you know, your tits. Like that's like the least sexy environment ever. And isn't that so brilliant though? Cause all these guys and, and some women too, I'm sure came to this movie because they wanted to fuck Jesse Spano, right? That's yeah. why they showed up. And what a great fuck you to them that they left, you know, not not having that uh, that desire fulfilled. You know, and Roger Ebert, he was quoted as saying that Showgirls was the biggest waste of an NC-17 rating ever because – and I don't think he got it, right? I think that everybody wanted it to be this, you know, I, I like the term you use, erotic, like this erotic movie because, I mean, Basic Instinct is an erotic thriller, right? You wanted to get that, you know, that excitement and it just doesn't – it just doesn't happen in this movie because the sex scenes – I mean, they're like written by a 12 year old boy, right? Yeah. Like that has never had sex before. <laughs> you know, that's what they're like. So and, and you know, you brought about Kyle McLaughlin. I think it's so smart that there's no male full frontal nudity because it doesn't make sense if they're showing all of this stuff. It doesn't make sense that he wouldn't also be required to have that full frontal. And if he wouldn't do it, they could have gotten somebody else that would have, right? Like, I think even that is such an intentional thing. Only the women, they're the ones that you see all aspects of them that are so hypersexualized. And then as a result of that, you kind of start to cringe. It's like, oh, like, I don't want them to to do that and look like that and have to be like that. And and I think it's really smart. And that that is, I think, the, the, the big message that I think that was missed when this film initially came out. I mean, you nailed it. Like, all my friends when I was 17 were like, we're going to go see Showgirls and they're all excited. And, and you know, the response from them was, well, that was terrible. And then I'm like, well, how can it be terrible? It was rated NC-17. You know, that, that's me, you know, 17-year-old me going, how can it be bad? I'm not saying everybody, but I think a lot of people just missed the underlying message of the film, which was, it, I don't want to say it was satirizing or, or a satirical look at being a showgirl. I think it was more of a warning of, you know, this is, this is, this is what the life is going to be like. And, you know, to touch on, you know, what you said, you know, you know that Nomi doesn't want to be at the cheetah. She doesn't want to be there. So knowing that when you see her dancing at the cheetah or doing the lap dance and everything, it, it there's nothing again, sexy or erotic about that because, you know, she doesn't want to be there. And it's just, again, for me, it was unsettling watching the movie in that and sort of through that lens of, is she even going to be happy when she ascends to the top and gets the lead? Because it, it's just, I find the movie, I think it's a good movie now, but I also find it an unpleasant watching experience in certain parts. And I think it's supposed to be, you know, I mean, I, for for those people who haven't seen it in forever, there's that 
really brutal rape scene at the end. And I think that if we're going to talk about this, we've got to talk about the payoff. And that's what I think is so smart about the way that the movie's constructed is because by the time we get there, every sexual encounter from the lap dance to even her dancing to the sex scene in the pool, it's all so overtly unrealistic. And the most realistic film, uh, part of the film with literally no camp is the rape scene. And I think that Verhoeven's trying to tell us something here. I think he's trying to show us that perhaps in a town and in a greater world where sex is a weapon, it's unfortunate that it's too often a weapon that's turned on the women who get unfairly accused of using it. And so, you know, he's shown us all those supported weapons. We've seen, you know, their their breasts. We've seen everything. And we've been given this visual arsenal of what the weapons are that women can use. But in the end, the women's are the ones who get fucked and exploited by the men who take those pieces of them and they claim them as their own. And that's what I think is so brilliant about it. And then you've got then the juxtaposition of that horrible rape scene and then you've got Nomi. And when she goes to the... I mean, I don't know the character's name. It looks like Michael Bolton on steroids, the guy who plays the rapist. But, you know, when she's going to him, think about it. The methodical way she paints her nails and puts on the red lips, she's putting on like a cat costume, right? The pussy costume, right? To be that traditional woman. But she also pulls her hair back. It's the first time she's got sleek hair and we see her face. And it's all so different because she's, for the first time, she's herself. For the first time, she's stripped because she sees what's happened to her friend and she goes and she takes her own. And that's what I think is so smart. I mean, it just, the payoff is great in this movie and it's funny. It's intentionally funny. You can't tell me this movie's unintentionally funny. I think it's obviously intentionally funny. And then you get slapped in the face with that horrible gang rape scene. And then she goes and beats the, you know, the shit out of the guy. And then she goes and she tells Gina Gershon bye and then leaves. She leaves it all behind. And I think that that is a I, I like what you said, a warning movie. It really is. It's almost like a um, an expose, right? I think that's what he's intending. I think he's trying to make this expose. And think about when it came out, Dana. This came out in 1995. The world was not ready to have this conversation yet. No. I mean, we, no. we weren't. And I think that's one of the reasons why, it, uh, sure, the NC-17 thing plays into it. I think all of that. But I think in general, even today in 2018, I mean, Americans are prudes, right? We're prudes. We don't want like to talk about sex and we really don't like to talk about women having sex because god forbid that a woman likes to have sex or that a woman's a sexual being that's still like a really taboo thing and i mean just look at like my own mother she's only seen two-thirds of game of thrones because she fast forwards through all the sex scenes because she can't like she can't handle it and so she can handle the violence and she can handle the language but god forbid you know she sees you know a, a penis and a vagina on screen like she can't she can't take it and i think that my mom is a perfect representation of even America today, but especially in 95. And all the stuff we talked about in Primary Colors, where you've got Tipper Gore fighting her fight, and then Clinton's about to come through in 98 with the big bombshell with Lewinsky, but we weren't even ready for that yet. And just compare like what's happening now with, with Trump. We're not talking about this, the fact that he cheated on his wife. Nobody cares about that yeah. anymore. And we did care about that still in 95. So, you know, I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons why it failed. And Verhoeven 
everyone had to be really excited that it did so well on home video because just like with porn, we accept our sexuality behind closed doors. But out in the open, I mean, no, that's where we draw the line. That's how we were in 95. And I would argue we still are today, which is why I think everybody should go out and watch Showgirls and tweet to Elizabeth Berkeley that she's amazing. <laughs> you, you mentioned that the sort of the the, the, the prude comment. And it reminds me of a, a just an amazing documentary that came out in 2006 called This Film Is Not Yet Rated. It explores the sort of the, the secretive world of the Motion Picture Association of America and the hypocrisy behind how they rate movies. You know, how some of the most violent things you've ever seen on camera will get the R rating, will get an R rating. And then once it, it delves into taboos of sex and sexuality and explicit sex, it is slapped immediately with the NC-17. And what's great about the film, and again, I, I warn you, don't watch this, don't watch this movie with your kids in the room or anything like no. that because it's, or it's, your mother. It's certainly, <laughs> it's certainly the film itself is rated NC-17. The documentary itself is rated NC-17 because what they'll, they, they'll ultimately do is show you the NC-17 version and then they'll do a side-by-side comparison of how they had to edit it to make it an R-rated film. But it really speaks to the hypocrisy of the MPAA. And, uh, you know, no one even knows who rates these movies. You know, it's it's a secret group, a parents group, if you will. Strongest recommendation. So the film, it, the, the documentary is called This Film Is Not Yet Rated. It came out in 2006. You know, Dana, I, I think that we also have to bring that back to talk about how you said at the beginning, Verhoeven is a Dutch director. He's not mm-hmm. from America. And I think he is, in reading his interviews, I think he was very confused by a lot about uh, America. And, you know, you're, you aren't originally from here. And for those people, even if you've not lived a where but you traveled the rest of the world is not like us you know one of my very favorite photos ever that I, I've taken on any of my exploits was um, I was in Paris a couple of years ago and um, I love Paris I've gone many many times and and one of my favorite photos of all of my trips there is we were in the area by, by Saint-Denis and there was a McDonald's like an American McDonald's and it was all glass and children are playing in a play place and literally right next door for lack of a better word is a sex shop with the naked women in the windows because you know, they're showing their goods and what you can purchase. And so it's that right next to the McDonald's. There's no black bars. There's no censoring. And and while I'm not saying that women are not exploited in other countries or in other cultures in the West, because obviously they are, they just approach sex differently. It's not as taboo of a subject. And I have to wonder if part of what Verhoeven is trying to say, not being from here, is that women would be less exploited if we at least begin to talk about these things. And and even preparing for this podcast, you know, I I hated the fact that like this little voice in the back of my head was like, oh, well, you know, maybe you should watch what words you say. And maybe, you know, maybe you shouldn't say this because it could make people uncomfortable. But I never thought that when we were doing our other two, talking about religion and the exorcist or talking about politics, I never question something I was going to say. And, and I think that that in and of itself for somebody like me, who's super, you know, independent, and, and I I'll steal a line from, uh, I, I'm sure I know a lot of your listeners listen to shot the movies, and they talk all the time about being social justice warriors, so I'll steal their line, like as a true social justice warrior, like, I don't have any problem talking about this. But knowing that we were going to be recording, I was like, Oh, well, what if certain listeners have problems with that? And the fact that I even thought about that for a movie about sex, I think in and of itself is indicative of what Verhoeven's trying to, you know, trying to portray here. And and that could be one of the reasons, you know, why this, I've never tackled this, this movie on my show before, because, uh, you know, it's one of those, 
you know, there's certain things, you know, you just, you know, for me, you know, you don't, you don't want to be, I don't want to arise controversy. And at, at some point, you just say, you know what, I'm going to talk about what I'm, what I'm interested in, the movies I'm interested in. And it, it just, you know, you know, I'll t- tell you a funny story real quick. You know, I'm so worried about offending people. You know, I did a, I did a, uh, an episode on the Fast and the Furious where I told a, you know, one of my personal stories about this crazy incident I had with my car and I released the episode and some guy on Twitter, he tried to report me to the police. He tried, he tagged the Florida Highway Patrol in a tweet, like, you need to listen to this episode. This guy belongs in jail. And I didn't do anything crazy. But I, but I'm sitting there going, I'm so worried about offending people with, you know, talk, frank talk of sexuality. Meanwhile, completely unrelated things are, are what's, what people are trying to get me in trouble for. So needless to say, (laughs) um, that episode is available to all Patreon listeners. You can, you can become a Patreon supporter for $1 a month and you can hear the episode that was reported to the police. So it was, was, but people are crazy though. Right. And I mean, like, and you know, in social media, I remember (laughs) when I was agreeing to do this, you know, I, which I was so excited. I mean, I was beside myself that you wanted me to, but I remember talking to, you know, people afterwards and I'm like, Oh, well, you know, just make sure you're prepared to have trolls, you know, on Twitter or, you know, whatever, whenever you put yourself out there. And that doesn't bother me at all, you know, but, and, and I mean, and in my job, I talk about really, I mean, I write about disenfranchisement and oppression. I teach about disenfranchisement and oppression. So I talk about that all the time with students and we talk about sex and we talk about gender and sexuality. And I have no issue with that, but knowing it was going to be recorded and be put out there, you start to, you know, second, second guess that. And, and that's, that's what I think is so scary. And I think that's why it's important for us to watch movies like Showgirls and for us to talk about them, because I think uh, maybe I'd be curious to know what you think about this, Dana. Like if it were released today, what do you think the, the reception would be and like in the me too movement and the world that we're in today. Do you think even with an NC 17 rating, do you think it would have been, let's not even talk about box office. Do you think critics would have responded better to it? I think critics would have responded to better to it. I mean, and I can only speak in the reality is that the film would never have gotten a theatrical release with an NC 17 in 2018. That just would not have happened. The streaming platforms are so dominant now that you see movies like blue is the warm, not, is blue is the warmest color? That uh-huh. one, yeah. The yeah. M- movie, movies amazing like, movie. movie, movies yeah. like blue. I mean, so that film would have been instantly relegated to a Netflix or a Hulu, where I think it would be championed. I think it would be. I don't even think it would be controversial because there's so much controversial stuff that comes out nowadays. But it was controversial because of the delivery system for the film, meaning that that MGM chose to say we're going to release this film to a wide theatrical audience. I mean, so it's, we're going to release this film wide. It's tough. It's tough. It might have been controversial if it had debuted on something like HBO or something, something. But for some reason, you know, Netflix or there's there's tons of graphic stuff on Netflix these days. And, well, I mean, look at HBO. Yeah, I mean, HBO. just HBO alone. I mean, I, I was watching uh, something. the other. Yeah. What's that one? The Deuce. That's what I'm talking about. The Deuce. Yeah. I watched... Speaking of the deuce, like I, that was highly recommended to me. And so I watched the first episode and just like showgirls, nothing erotic about that movie whatsoever. Mm-hmm. That movie is, I mean, excuse me, that, that series is, da- is dour and depressing. And I, I didn't, they said, did you f- keep watching? I said, no, because certain shows like that, I don't, they're just so down and I don't even, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just rambling on, but, uh, 
I think well, I was- no, but, I mean, there, there's a really interesting essay that I was reading while prepping for this, you know, that was talking about the the fear of sexuality amongst women, like for women to be sexual beings. And, and it was it was talking about how seldom on screen, how often, well, how often on screen men are shown having orgasms that are realistic and women aren't like how few portrayals of the way that women actually orgasm are portrayed and look at this movie like i can guarantee you men out there if your woman is doing what elizabeth Berkeley is doing she is not enjoying herself like that is not how women are and i think even that alone i mean we we don't have those examples of of what it's like because in the essay was talking about how we're like afraid of this female empowerment and and i think that it's much like how we talk today about like institutionalized racism you know and, and white privilege and in all of that which we won't get into into right now, but you know, that we've kind of accepted as a society that there are certain groups of people that have more advantage than others. It's the same thing regarding gender, that there's institutionalized, you know, sexism and institutionalized misogyny. And, and you can agree with the pay gap or not, you can agree with the wage gap or not, that that's your own personal opinion. But you also have to agree that when you turn on television, and you watch the way that sexuality is portrayed, seldomly do you have women's sexuality, especially, um, you know, lesbian sexuality portrayed in an accurate way. And that's why I think this movie would be really interesting today because I think it's, it's making that point. But I, I did think a fun question to ask you that to follow that up, that's a little less serious um, is who do you think would be the Elizabeth Berkeley today? Right? Because if we're going to have the innocent type cast, I was thinking about that because Elizabeth Berkeley obviously now is in her 40s. So it wouldn't be Elizabeth Berkeley. But who would be the 2018 know me that would be as controversial? Oh, I wish you would have prepped me ahead of time for that one. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm it's sorry. okay. No, it's okay. <laughs> I um. Gosh, that's, I'm just trying to rack my- I think that's interesting to think about, right? Because women are different now. Like the the young characters, because Jesse Spano, let's be honest, right? Jesse Spano looked 35 yeah. when she was on Saved by the Bell, right? I mean, she looked old. And so her transition wasn't as shocking in, in that way. You know, the teen stars today are much closer in age to the teen years than they were- Back then, and I was thinking of somebody, you know, somebody like, you know, me looking at the the big teen shows, you know, somebody like, you know, who is what is her name? She's on that that new show, Sabrina. She was in Mad Men. What is her name? Oh my god! Have you have you seen that? The Chronicles of Sabrina, the Teenage Witch. Like, like I I actually have. But you know, I was thinking somebody like her. The people from that show, Riverdale. You know, the the girl who plays Betty, or you know, even somebody. I could even see it being controversial. Somebody like Ariana Grande, who looks so cute and sweet. Like that's what I think is interesting is that I couldn't even think about somebody that would be that controversial. I couldn't pinpoint that one person that's heralded in that way that would be as controversial. Well, that was that was sort of the genius of the casting back then. Right. Is because, you know, if they were to announce a movie, let's say just unbelievably they decided they're going to do a remake of Showgirls, the, who who they pick, if they stuck to the formula, who they pick would be someone you and I would have never thought of. Right. Because uh, because Elizabeth Berkeley was not 
it would there's no way there's no way in hell anyone would have ever predicted that she would have done a movie like this no. Not, I mean, the only one I can even think of would maybe like Vanessa Hudgens at her height, like going from high school musical into this. Like, that's the only person that I could really. And she kind of had that with Spring Breakers, right? Like people yeah. were really shocked by her turn in Spring Breakers. Now, that was a fantastic movie. So she did it. And she's a great actress. So that wasn't um, well, great. She's a good actress. And so that wasn't quite as big of a deal. But I think even that alone, I think, lends itself for us to realize that in 2018, Showgirls would have just been a much different film. And I just think it would have been seen by a lot more people and I think it would have been talked about by critics as being smart rather than talked about by critics as being shit right so yeah all right. Well, any closing thoughts on the film before we wrap this up? No, I just, you know, go see it. It's fun. They do the midnight shows of it, like Rocky Horror, apparently, which I think would be really interesting to go see. Uh, my brother, um, I think he said that he had done something like that. And, I, you know, so I go, but, you know, look at it. It's on Voodoo. Is that how you say it? Voodoo? Yeah, V-U-D-U. Um, yeah, that's actually how I watched it. For those for, for those listening, Voodoo is a... Uh, one of the you know, a million streaming apps that are out there right now. They do offer a la carte movies for rent, but they do have a selection. And I was pretty shocked to see they've got a selection of close to 3,000 free movies on there. So if you do, like I watched, I downloaded Voodoo on my Xbox and I searched Showgirls and it immediately popped up and it just said free with ads. So to be clear now, you're going to have to watch you know, a few commercials at the beginning and they're going to throw a couple commercials through it. But it's the NC-17 movie. It's not stripped down by any means. So... Um, that's, that's one avenue I'd recommend that, you know, you go check it out if you're, if you're wanting to watch it immediately after listening to this, but if you can see it with a crowd at, in a midnight showing, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily how you want to see it for the very first time, because if you're like me, you're, you're, you know, you're a lights off concentrating on the film type of person, but, uh, Dana, I would love to hear a, you know, move, not a movie theater rant, but a midnight showing fanboy fangirl rant from you for something like that. How could, how could you ever imagine I'd ever make it to one of those Because there's things? no twosies. There's no twosies no. at those things. <laughs> And I would just say we got such we got such great feedback on The Exorcist 3. And I got some really fun tweets from people that did go back and watch it or that were planning to go back and watch it. So I would just say the same thing. If you've never seen it or if you're going back to see it, you know, I don't want to speak for you, Dana, but I think you would agree. We would love to hear, you know, what your experience was and kind of, you know, kind of what you what you thought. And, you know, it, it's always fun to, to include that. That's been really great about being a part of this is, you know, hearing from you guys and getting to meet you guys on Twitter and us talk about it because I really do think we're doing a service by kind of uncovering some of these lost or, or misunderstood, you yeah. know, these lost or misunderstood films that I think people really should give a second try or first try to. Well, let me ask this, and I'm, I agree with you. I'd be really curious, you know, especially if it's your first time watching the movie. But if you're like me or you're you're like Ashley and you saw it in the 90s when it came out and you were just like, fuck that. I'm not I'm not watching that again. But then you know, you go back and rewatch it and you see it from a completely different set of eyes. And I'd just be kind of curious if you had the sort of the same, you know, the same experience that we did. I mean, I, I watched the movie and it, it's no longer, it's a, it's a so bad. It's good. It's, it's actually, it's smart. Mm. It's actually, a, it's actually a much smarter movie than a lot of people gave it credit for. When you get settled into just how over the top all the performances are, I think you're going to find it's a very sobering movie. And, and I would say give it through the lap dance because once yeah. the lap dance was over, that's when I was like, okay, she's a genius. He's a genius. I love it. So I would say give it at least through 
stick it out. <laughs> They're at least that point. Excellent. So if uh, people want to, oh, actually, before I, I just just out of curiosity, because this thought question popped in my mind of the of our unintentional trilogy of the three things you should never talk about politics, religion, and sex. Of those three movies, which one did you enjoy revisiting the most? Oh, goodness. Um, oh, oh, just for the listeners, we're talking about Primary Colors, Exorcist 3, and Showgirls. Oh, Dana, that's a hard question. Uh, I, I mean, I think that the one that I enjoyed the most was The Exorcist 3 because it was a lot of fun and it was a movie I had never seen before. So I think I probably enjoyed it the most. But in terms of the movie that's going to leave the most impact on me, I think it'll be Showgirls because it definitely it, it is a movie. I'm telling you that when we decided to do it, I thought we were going to have so much fun, you know, just panning it and, you know, talking about the camp and and the fact that it really made me think. Think? That was a huge surprise. So it's definitely the one that I think will will last the longest. What about you? I'm, I'm going to give the slight edge to The Exorcist 3. Even though I had seen it once when I was 12 years old, the way that movie affected me just in the actual viewing of it was like, I've never, that's never happened before. Where I just said, I get, I got to stop. I got to stop for a minute here. Not because I was bored or I wasn't interested. I was just like, fuck this. I, I got to stop. This is too much. So yeah, we'll see. But yeah, definitely The Exorcist 3. Um, Showgirls for me was, it was, it was an eye opener in the sense that it was, God, it was just so damn much. It was so much better than I thought it was going to be when I, when I revisited it. I was like, oh, this is going to suck. And, and I looked at the running time of over two hours and I was like, oh, what have I got myself into? I've committed to this though. <laughs> Cause you had already been emailing me like, I, oh, I've watched it already. I'm like, oh shit. And, <laughs> And, and, and the reality is I started watching it and, you know, like I talked about, like the, that scene, you know, she pulls the knife switchblade out right when she gets hitched. Like, I'm like, oh, fuck, this is, is going to be as bad as I thought it was. And then the reality is it completely turned around quickly. And I started to realize that they're, they're, because like you said, and like I've said, very smart people behind the making of this film, they're not going to make a, they're, they're not doing this. They're not accidentally making this so over the top. So no. in closing, I definitely think you should check this film out. So Ashley, give people your uh, your Twitter name so they can follow you on Twitter. Sure. So I'm at, at Ashley Schlafly on Twitter, and I would love love to hear from you. Absolutely. And I have established a new email address. So if you want to email the show and email Ashley and I with questions or comments, you can email at thedanabucklershow at gmail.com. Surprisingly, that one was available when I signed up for it. I'm like, okay. So, all right, everybody, thank you so much. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.